Good morning. How's everybody doing? I hope you're doing well. Happy Palm Sunday, the, the, the day that we recognize Jesus' uh, entry into Jerusalem a week before his resurrection. So uh, we're excited to be here with you. I just want to throw something out real quick in case you were unaware. That video that you just watched was made in-house. I've had several people ask where we got that from. And not only was it made in-house, but it was actually uh, directed and edited by my very own son, who is, nope, that's not him, who is hiding somewhere. Typically, he's up here, Isaac. uh, And there he is in the back. And Isaac is crushing it. I'm really proud of him. Uh, We have Quinn, who has been our kind of our producer, handling all of our tech for several years now. He got married yesterday, and uh, yeah, yeah, and he is uh, not here this morning, admittedly, and during this transition, because Quinn is actually going to be moving to Nashville, uh, uh, Isaac has been stepping up and filling some of those uh, little needs that are there, and so I just wanted to publicly, just like I would recognize any volunteer going above and beyond, recognize Isaac, so, uh, and then I'm doubly excited because I get to love him in a way I don't love the rest of the volunteers, um, in case you were wondering. And then I got to do one last thing, and um, it's just part of, uh, uh, we'll just call it uh, pastor privilege. Uh, My daughter is actually working the live stream right now in the back, and today is her 16th birthday. So uh, I have a feeling she's watching right now, and she's thankful she's not in here. But if you'll do me a big favor, she loves high fives and tackle hugs. And uh, be sure to tell her happy birthday uh, if you can before you leave today. We are a, I got to tell you, I'm a, I'm a really blessed man. And uh, I have a really blessed family. And, and I am thankful for my, my kids, uh, my wife. And I got to tell you that uh, it is not an accident. It's not like the lottery, like I went and picked some good numbers and they just worked, you know. Um, It's because I believe the principles of Scripture and I work hard to apply them to my life and to apply them to our family. And speaking of families, we are blessed today to have John and Karina here with brand new baby girl. Uh, Be sure to uh, congratulate them as well before uh, you leave today. So now that we've got all of that out of the way, we can dive into today's uh, uh, message. So if you would, please stand to your feet. We are in week seven of doctrine. Uh, We're going to read the word together. Uh, Let's go ahead and we'll start right here in Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. This is going to be important for today. Verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. I pray that as we dive into the text today that uh, you would speak to us, that truth would be discovered, Lord. Uh, please help me to, 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 do, to do the presentation or the teaching of the word in a way that honors you and removes my own bias in there, Lord. I want to make sure that we are learning what it is that you have for us in your mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Week seven, we're going to be talking about incarnation, incarnation, right? God coming in the flesh. Now, I'm trying to do this whole little bit as we dive into the text each week and talk about why is it that we're talking about incarnation, okay? Why are we talking about incarnation? Primary reason here is that we live in what the the pundits of our day are declaring to be a pro post-truth generation, post-truth generation. What does it mean to be post-truth? 
It really comes down to this idea that what is true is subjective to each individual person. So what may be true to me may not be true to you, right? And this is, it's very poetic, right? Uh, it, it feels very good. Uh, I'm going to make the argument that it's disconnected from reality, right? It's disconnected from reality. I, I was a, uh, a kid, and you may find this hard to believe that I was a kid, uh, but I was a kid at one point, and I had an imaginary friend. And I had this imaginary friend, and I would talk to the imaginary friend, and I would play with the imaginary friend. There were some things going on, I'm sure, that weren't quite right up there. But my mom and dad did what a good mom and dad do, and they came in one day, and they said, all right, we've had a lot of fun. You know, you're 20 now, <laughs> right? It's time for the imaginary friend to go away, right? That was a part of growing up, right? Why? Why? Because there has to come a point in life where we, listen to what I'm saying, where we have to begin to distinguish between what we feel might be good and what is right, okay? And a lot of times what's right and what's good require effort today, right, for them to, to come to fulfillment, right? Now, Living in a post-truth generation and you uh, adopt this idea that whatever you believe is true is true and, and, and I don't have to accept your truth to be my truth will always only lead to one thing and that is chaos. It can only produce chaos. And you might think right now, well, Pastor Jim, there's not chaos everywhere, right? Well, that's because we're in the post-truth generation. The product of the post-truth generation is going to be chaos. We are going to see a generation that is, that is, is sitting there one day trying to address all of the harm that comes out of this, okay? right? We're going to see that. It's a, it's a reality, right? If, if, if I'm a prophet in no other way than this, it is that one day we are going to have lots of those who are young today become adults and be faced with harsh realities of how you pay for things, how you navigate difficult situations, and they're going to say, no, 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 hold on. I don't accept that. I don't believe that. And the world, the ground around them is not going to move for them. And then they're going to need help. They're going to need counseling. They're going to need conversations because at the end of the day, if we don't have something that we agree on, it will only produce chaos. You see, order, which is what most of us want, order in life, order requires that some things be mutually agreed upon. In order for there to be order, we have to come to some types of agreements. We have to be able to, in a society, sometimes we just as simple as agreeing to disagree right? Just agreeing to disagree. There's a mutual respect. And when that mutual respect is removed, right, then we end up with chaos. And living in this post-truth generation, the argument that is birthing out of some parts of the church right now is, what does it matter if Jesus is the Son of God or not the Son of God? What does it matter if God came in the flesh? And so, therefore, because I can't be a God coming in the flesh. Nobody could be a God coming in the flesh. And so therefore, I get it. Grandma believes that God came in the flesh. That's her truth. I've got my truth. And where does this end, right? Well, it ends, right, with destruction. It ends with that chaos. And I thought about it and I was like, like, like this is such a, a beautiful work of the enemy that we have seen over and over and over throughout history, right? We can just look at the scriptures for a moment and we can go and look at them and go, man, we have seen times where the enemy has gotten a foothold and, and been able to convince a society to think one way, to act one way. And what does it ultimately lead to? It ultimately leads to chaos. All right, um, I'm, I'm going to pause on this just one more quick second. If you just go to the Old Testament and you go to Israel, God takes this group of slaves, Hebrew slaves in Egypt, and he shows up and he says, listen, we're, I'm, I'm taking you out of this place, right? Moses is his conduit and Moses goes to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh is like, are you joking? They're the ones that are doing all the work for us. I'm not letting them go. And then they face 10 plagues supernatural plagues, right? It ends with the death of all the firstborn sons, right? And finally, Pharaoh goes, you know what? Get out of here, right? They get out of there. They cross 
on dry ground through the Red Sea. I just want you to think about the miracle of that, watching the waters part. You get to the other side, and then there's a mountain, and God says, I want to speak to you, and His presence come and rests on top of it, and they're all watching as Moses is up on the mountain. And what happens is, is that their nature, their human nature, begins to take, take over, and instead of acknowledging the reality of where they're at and what they have seen with their own eyes and experience, they go back to that idea that, well, maybe God's abandoned us. Maybe it was better in Egypt. And there's nothing that's in the present that's actually communicating that, right? But they still are wrestling with it. And what happens? Constantly, the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament are navigating chaos in their lives because what? They accept God. They get they receive favor, they live well, they do well, they're blessed, they reject God. What happens? They end up in captivity, everything's destroyed, story after story. Go from Genesis all the way up to the time of Christ. And what are they doing? They're repeating this cycle over and over and over. And here's the reality. Every generation, and if you are 20 years old or younger, I want you to hear me right now. Every generation has thought, we got this. We are so much smarter than those that came before us. We're more diverse. We're more inclusive. We're more loving. You aren't inventing anything. You're just repeating. Now, if you wanted to do better than previous generations, you'd read a history book and say, this doesn't work. We're going to do it different, right? We're going to do it different. But the enemy continues to create deception in the hearts of man. And if the enemy were a cat, this is what it would look like, right? I don't know if you have one of these cats in your home. I have one. I, we have our toilet paper now in plastic containers. I mean, we need to chain it down because if the bathroom door gets left open, there's toilet paper everywhere, right? right? I'm, I'm convinced that, that cats are, are there to bring destruction into your life and then make you feel too vulnerable to do anything about it, right? When my dog does something wrong, I can go, hey, that was bad. And the dog's like, yeah, you're probably right. I won't do that again. The cat goes, mm, maybe, <laughs> right? And you've heard me for years talk about cats this way, and I have three of them in my house now, right? I don't know what God's trying to do. All right. So, Here's my point. Here's my point is that there has to be something that we receive as being reality. And that is constantly being tested. It's constantly being fought against. Now, when it comes to this idea of incarnation, okay, progressivechristianity.org, I'd encourage you to go and look at the website. You're hearing me talk a lot about progressive Christianity. Can, can I just go ahead and make a real quick statement for you? When I talk about pro progressive Christianity, I'm not talking about a political party. You do understand that, right? Because I, I, some people have been like, oh man, Pastor Jim's always talking about the political parties. I'm actually not talking about political parties. I'm talking about a group of people that identify as progressive Christians. That I'm just using their term, okay? If we were going to use biblical terms or the terms of the church fathers, we would call it heresy, false teaching, you know what I'm saying? But, but, but we're going to call it progressive Christianity. So progressivechristianity.org, when it comes to the idea of incarnation as it has been taught in the church for 2,000 years now. This is how, this is what they write. The divine is incarnated whenever we individually and collectively live by virtues like compassion, kindness, forgiveness, mercy, peace, and nonviolence, caring and responsible stewardship, egalitarian justice for all, generosity, uh, beneficence, benefic uh, yeah, magnanimity, etc. Magnanimity. I know these words, don't judge me. Right? Okay, so incarnate, God is made in the flesh when you are nice to somebody, right? But in a post-truth generation, what is being nice? Well, it's when I love somebody. Well, what is loving somebody, right? Because if I don't define love the same way that you define love, then when I'm acting in the way that I think is loving and you're going, that's crazy, that's not love, well, then all of a sudden, right, the incarnation's never going to be seen. And the idea that, that God is made incarnate when all of a sudden we're compassionate to everybody around us really just flies in the face of Scripture as a whole because Scripture constantly talks about calling out those that are in sin, right? As, as what? It's an act of love. When we go and tell somebody, hey, listen, you're living in a way that does, does not honor God. It's not what's best for you. That is loving. But the definitions in a post-truth generation would be 
oh man, that's so mean. That's not compassionate, right? That's not, that's not caring, but it is caring. And I, I just use the most basic illustration over and over and over, right? That if you were to see m- my kid playing basketball and you were to watch me run out there and grab my kid and snatch him up off the ground and run off, you'd think, man, that was crazy. That's a, he's a jerk of a dad, right? If that's all you saw. But if you saw the bigger picture that there was a giant tank barreling down the road and was about to crush my kid, you would go, man, that was heroic. What, a, what an act of love, right? So this is what it means to be God and why it's so important that we can complete, constantly confess that I'm not God. I'm not God. I don't know all things. I don't see all things. So if God is saying, yeah, this is the, this is the way you should do it, then I'm going to trust that he might be seeing some things around the corner that I don't see. He might have access to some, some content that I don't have access to. And so how do we define it, Right? Well, this idea of wrestling with the incarnation of God is not something that's new. In fact, the very earliest parts of the church were wrestling with it. Uh, One of the ideas that was birthed out of it was uh, ebionism, which is that Jesus was not really God, just a good man. Uh, This is not in line with the testimony of those who interacted with Jesus. So they would argue that Jesus was just the, the, uh, the goodest of people, right? Is that a word, right? Arianism. So this is that he was not fully God, but more of a demigod, right? And the idea that God had produced this like half human, half God, and that would be a demigod. Uh, and yet again, it does not align with the scriptures. And then you had the Apollinarianism, and this was that the body of a human, that Jesus had the body of a human, but the mind of a God. And again, that did not align with the testimony of Scripture. But these were the ideas that people were rationalizing with. Why would they come to this position, right? I, I, I mean, listen, listen to me if you're in here right now, okay? I, and I especially, some of this logic, I really want you, if you're younger in here, to get a hold of for a moment. Why would they wrestle with whether or not God came in the flesh, right? So, the reason that they were arguing with it or wrestling with it is because they themselves could not reproduce it. I don't know if that's true because I can't reproduce it. I have not been with God and seen Him in some way, like the whole process of becoming flesh, and so therefore I can't reproduce it. And let me tell you, part of what it looks like to be a believer in Christ or a follower of Christ is to come to the position that says, "I, I, I can't do these things. I'm not God. And I think that's probably a really good confession to be made for us today is to remind ourselves when we're sitting here and looking at things that don't make sense to confess, well, I'm not God, right? And, And we can get this on such a micro level if we just think about other relationships that we have, right? If you've lived long enough, you've probably had your mom and dad tell you to do something that at the time you thought was not good, that you were smarter than they were, and then you th- then you got enough life under your belt, and you're like, man, mom and dad actually knew what they were talking about, right? And, and, and then maybe you're too prideful, so you just never confess that, or maybe you call your mom and dad and weep on the phone and apologize for being such a terrible human being as a kid. Mom, dad, I'm sorry, right? You come to those conclusions that says, man, I, I just don't know everything, and if you've had kids, then you have had the experience where they're sitting there arguing with, with you, and you're thinking to yourself, like, you just don't understand. And, and you're in your own finite ability trying to explain it to them, and they're not getting it. And so part of what it looks like, right, to, to be a follower of Christ is that we look at what God is capable of doing. So why does it matter, right? Why does it matter? Because that becomes the next the next question. Okay, Pastor Jim, you're saying that Jesus came, he was God in the flesh. We know that that was prophesied all the way back in Isaiah, but what does it matter, right? Like if if I don't believe he came in the flesh and you believe he came in the flesh, like let's let everybody's truth be their truth. We'll all get to the same place, right? Well, the problem is that this fractures what is uh, called the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption, this is the earliest covenant that we are made aware of, right, that, that, that exists when we look at Scripture. And it is this. It is the Father's responsibility to plan redemption. 
It is the Son's responsibility to accomplish redemption, and it is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to apply redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is this. God will not allow sin, right, the nature of sin, to exist in His presence. He loves us. He needs us to be redeemed so that we can be in His presence. So, redemption is the washing away of sin. The washing away of sin. And so, if we do not believe that God came in the flesh, right, it creates a fracture that works its way all the way back to this, to this covenant of redemption that you and I so desperately need. Now, Jesus accomplishes redemption by descending to earth and then ascending to heaven. This already is more than what just normal humans can do, Right? I mean, if you know somebody that has the ability to descend and ascend, I'd love to meet them, right? We'll have them on Sunday, okay? Come and speak. Jesus descends to earth. He ascends to heaven. Now, we are familiar with the ascension. This is something that gets talked about all the time. But the descension is the moment that the Son leaves the Father and the Holy Spirit to come to earth, right? It's the moment that He leaves, what He describes in a moment as the glory. He leaves the glory to come and be among us. This is incarnation, This is what it means to come in the flesh. So let's go back to Romans 1 for just a moment. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Just a a really cool side note. I love to give you side notes all the time, right? Paul does not say, hey, this is Apostle Bishop Paul. Here are all my degrees. You can call me doctor, blah, 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 blah. He says that he is a servant, a term that is interchangeable with slave, right? He says, I am a servant of Christ called to be an apostle. Think about the difference there, right? God called me to the position that I am in, and I am set apart for the gospel of God. Not to be, hey, I have a website, and I'm available for speaking. You can go on there. You can get with my manager, who probably has a manager. I know, and we only fly first class, right? I'm only speaking out of experience, you know, that, that, that Paul doesn't do that, right? Paul says that he is a servant. Now, let's go on to verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, talking about the gospel here. Watch this. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to talk about what does it mean to be incarnate, and I'm going to try to establish the fact that God coming in the flesh is what even those that wrote the Scriptures believed. Okay? Right? So, it's not like this was a fringe theory. According to the flesh. So, in the Greek, what does the word flesh mean? The word flesh means body, human nature. So, when he's writing here, he doesn't say descended from David according to the Spirit, right? Or he doesn't say according to some, you know, uh, type of family tree that has third cousins in it. No, it's very, very specifically here that there was a direct correlation, right, where we can trace the bloodline from David straight to Jesus, and it was the same type of bloodline and fleshly nature that all of us can can relate to. We can't relate to God as God because we aren't God, but we can relate to God as flesh because we are flesh. So this is the, the relation. This is what we have in common with Jesus. It is the reason why God came in the flesh. Verse 4 and was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's argument here that he lays out right here in the beginning, because you know what he's about to do, and we don't have time for it today, but he's about to start addressing sin, and right out of the gate he comes swinging at sexual sin. Okay, so Paul's about to get real heavy in here. What does he do? He says, I have been called right? To be an apostle, to be one that raises up church leaders, establishes churches, that helps to establish doctrine. And I do it for the sake of the gospel. And that gospel presentation is that Jesus showed up in the flesh. This was, he left God the Father, he left the Holy Spirit, and he came in the flesh. And he did this, and then he was murdered, and he was resurrected. He is the Son of God. 
Look at John chapter 1, verse 14 here, talking about the flesh. And the Word became flesh, right? We talked about this the other day. John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And then it says that the Word became flesh, so the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I just want to point this out for you because, man, we have people who love to take a, a word and go, well, that's how we translate it from the Greek in this sense, but it might mean something else in a different place. That's not the general rule, right? It's just like our words. They're defined the same. And flesh is body or human nature, right? So, he wasn't talking about something else. It was talking about this connecting point for us, this connecting point for us. So, this is not a diminishing of His divinity. Rather, it is an addition to it. His, his divine nature, who He is, didn't leave Him, right? It was still there, but the flesh was added to it for a season. For what purpose? For our benefit. So, this is not some idea that was cooked up in a lab a thousand years after Christ. The argument here is that the early church believed in the incarnation, the very earliest form of the church. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11, Paul, most scholars believe, was actually quoting a hymn. It's called the Kenosis Hymn by some, the Kenotic Hymn by others. And we're going to take a look at it right now. This word kenosis in the Greek, it means emptying right? So, the emptying him. What, what does that do? It's going to help us understand incarnation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, we oftentimes refer to Jesus as Christ, okay? And that's what, that's what Paul's doing here. There's nothing wrong with that. But I thought this was pretty interesting that he rarely, rarely called himself Christ. Instead, he referred to himself as the Son of Man, as the Son of Man. Why did he call himself the Son of Man? Well, this was the fulfillment of a prophecy or a dream that Daniel had in chapter 7. We'll look at these verses in just a moment. But Daniel is having a dream. So, who is Daniel? Daniel is a young man, probably somewhere around the age of 15 years old, right? So, if you're, if you're young in here, think about this for a moment. Daniel was around the age of 15. He had been raised in what is apparently a godly home because the young, the young man knew the Word of God. He believed God. 15 years old, he is taken away from his parents, taken to another land, and then he is turned into an, uh, a eunuch. If you don't know what that is, ask your mom and dad. And he is put into the king's palace, and he lives out his days being indoctrinated under the ideas of religion that Babylon have, right? In fact, the, the Scriptures tell us that he spends uh, uh, three years in a school, right, so that he can learn how to live in their society. So, he goes to school. He has professors that tell him, you've been told this your whole life, but that's not true. This is what's true. And so, he comes out, and he has some type of degree and some type of program that's not really going to do a whole lot for him in life, but he's a better person for it. And then he comes in, and they tell him, you're going to live this way, and you're going to worship this God. And what does Daniel say? No, not going to do it, right? Even to the point that this is the guy, in case you're just connecting some dots here, that refuses to bow to the statue and worship God, so they throw him into a lion's den, Right? And he's going to the lion's den, and he's like, yo, man, this is, I don't care, right? Fifteen years with my mom and dad, I got enough of who God is and this Jesus that's coming that I'm good. You do whatever you need to do. So, Daniel is having a dream, and in this dream, he sees these beasts, these crazy creatures. They're hard to describe, even by today's terms, and they represent the kingdoms. Think about this for a moment. I hope that you appreciate this. They're hard to describe. Why? Because they are the kingdoms that man creates. They do not make sense. They bring destruction, right? They are a, 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 just a dichotomy, just the opposite of what God creates. And what does man do? Man is out here trying to create, and the things we create has three heads and five feet and claws made out of iron. And I mean, 
you know, just, it's, it's an insane looking thing, and it's the different kingdoms that are going to rule and reign in our time. And in the midst of these dreams, and in the midst of this revelation that, hey, there is going to be a number of these kingdoms, and ultimately it's all going to be put apart. He gets, it's going to be all put, put to, to rest. It's all going to be torn down. He gets a little glimpse, just a small glimpse of what that tearing down looks like. And it's here in chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Because he is in the process right now of rectifying the mess that we consistently make. And when it is finished, when it is all done, it will be an eternal kingdom, and it will not need to be repaired. And this just gives me another little side note for you. Jesus believed the Scriptures. That's why all through the New Testament, when the writers are quoting Him, He's quoting the Old Testament Scriptures. So when people make the argument that well, we don't need the Old Testament, well, Jesus surely needed the Old Testament because He's talking about it all the time. And then you have all of the New Testament writers that are talking about know the Scripture, they weren't talking about the letters that they were writing. They had no idea how that was going to be formed together. They were talking about the Old Testament. Now, are there parts of the Old Testament that are fulfilled covenantly? Absolutely. But when you know that, it, you can still read them. You just understand that these parts are fulfilled. Let's keep going. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does this mean? That Jesus did not consider the glory he had dwelt in for eternity to be something he must hold on to. He came, he had dwelt in this glory that, that we will never dwell in, right, being God, but he did not see that as being so, something he had to, to fight for. He was willing to let that glory go for a season. And this is where we get the idea of kenosis because it explains that Jesus gave up his glory temporarily. What is that glory? That is that direct existence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was removed from that in some form, okay? Watch verse 7, but emptied himself, okay, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, okay? Emptied being what? That's that ekinosin, the kenosis. So that is to deprive of content, to empty. So get a picture of this. He is still fully God, but he deprives himself. He actively deprives himself of access to that glory. He says, I am removed from that right now. I am living a certain way. Do you, do you understand that? We get this, right? We fast. We deprive ourselves of food, Right? We don't eat dessert for a little while because we're on a diet. We're depriving ourselves of sugar. So we get what it looks like to make a conscious decision and deprive ourselves. That's what, that's what Christ was doing. That's what Jesus was doing. He came. He was God in the flesh, but he was depriving himself of that glory, right? But it was only for a season. Now, Jesus allows his own divine standing to be subject to man's criticism and denial, that's what he does. He shows up, he removes himself from the glory, and then he allows you to look at him and go, yeah, I, I, I accept that. Or for you to go, man, I don't want nothing to do with that. I don't believe that. Why don't you believe it? Because I can't, I can't do it. I don't know anybody. How many people do you know that have been raised from the grave, right? Well, I actually don't know anyone but Jesus, <laughs> right? I don't know anything. That's why it's called a miracle. If everybody was getting up out of the grave, it wouldn't be such a big deal. You know, I believe in Jesus because he ate at Taco Bell. <laughs> Whoa, so did I. No, I actually don't. I don't like Taco Bell. I know, I'm in the minority. Everyone else loves Taco Bell. So he doesn't just come as a man, but also he comes as a slave. Think about that for a moment. 
They don't just see him as coming as a man and living this like baller dream life, right, where he's got all the money and the entourage around him. Not only does God come in the flesh, but he does it in a way as to serve everybody around him. And he doesn't, think about this, he doesn't even try to change his position. There's no effort to better himself and, you know, establish some type of monetary fund that allows him to do the things he dreams of doing, right? Now, am I saying that those things are bad? I'm, I'm not saying that having a nice house or driving a nice car is bad, right? Okay? All things subject to being obedient to what God has called you to do. And sometimes God's going to call some of us to places where it's just not going to work to have some of the fancier and nicest things, right? That's part of being obedient. Verse 8, watch this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, obedient, right? How did, how was he obedient? He was obedient through humility. Do you understand that obedience requires humility? And so when somebody says, ain't nobody going to tell me nothing, that's because they don't have humility. Think about it for a moment. It takes humility to put the things that I think are right down to the ground for a moment and do the things that I'm being asked to do. That means that I'm submitting to authority, right? Now, I, I, you know, my first real job was at a grocery store, and it was called Winn-Dixie. Anybody ever heard of a Winn-Dixie? I don't even know if those things are around anymore, but it was a Winn-Dixie. I'm still young, I promise. Uh, but I was at a Winn-Dixie, and, uh, you know, I would be sent out to go get the shopping carts, which was terrible in the summer, Right? I lived in Birmingham, Alabama. It was 175,000 degrees outside, right? Nobody had the air conditioning going. And I'd be sent out there with a shopping cart. And this was before they had that little remote control magnet thing that people use now. And they're like walking behind it like this. I mean, they didn't even give me a strap. I just had to stack them all together and then just like use my muscles to push them uphill both ways. You know what I'm saying? To get them in. And I hated doing it, right? And so what I would do is I would go out and I'd get some, some carts and I would take them up and then I would go and walk around the building and get into my car and turn on my air conditioning and put on some great music and sit there and let the air blow and cool down. And I just thought, man, I got this thing figured out, right? I'll put the carts up twice as fast as everyone else so I can spend half my time in the air conditioning of my vehicle and everyone's happy. That was until the assistant manager came out one day when I was sitting in my car in the air conditioning and tapped on the window. And I looked up and I was scared. And he's like, what you doing? I was like, oh, I was looking for something. And he said to me this, this saying, I've never forgotten it. He said, I didn't fall off the cabbage truck yesterday. And I thought to myself, what is a cabbage truck? <laughs> right? And he said, did you think that you were allowed to do this? And I was like, no, no, I didn't. And he's like, but you did it anyway. And I was like, yes. And he was like, you know what the consequences for that are, right? I was like, I'm fired. And he was like, no, I'm going to write you up. But you do it again and you'll be fired, right? Now, I could have been like, nobody's going to tell me I got to be out there in the sun pushing the shopping carts. But let me tell you something else. If I wasn't out in the sun pushing the shopping carts, I didn't have money to take my pretty girlfriend on a date, right? And if I didn't take her on a date, somebody else was going to take her on a date. So I learned real quick that I was going to go and push carts out in the sun. Now, I know that's reverse logic, right? It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, somebody else should have to pay for it. But that's just not the way that the world was working. So what did it require of me? Some humility. And humility to what? To obey. Humility to obey. And we hate to be obedient. We hate it. Right? And we encourage hating obedience, right? We've got entire, like, Reddit has entire forums dedicated to, yeah, here's what you tell your boss when they tell you to do something you don't want to do, right? Oh, here's the great, we can even, do you know that you can pay somebody to quit for you, right? You can pay somebody, they will make a film of themselves degrading your boss and then send it on your behalf and they're the one cussing your boss out and telling them how worthless they are and that, by the way, you quit. And we champion it. Yeah, man, you were disobedient. Listen, I'm not telling you that you're not going to have bosses you don't like. You're going to have bosses you don't like. That is a reality. And you do not have to stay there, right? But you also do not have to flush your character down the toilet while you're leaving. You can have a little bit of humility. And it pays off. I'll show you in just a moment. 
I think of this right here. I'm right, you're wrong, right? If you've seen Dumb and Dumber, you know, it's just nonstop. I'm always right. If you have that mentality, do you know what the, con- you know what the benefit of that? You know what you reap from that? Not much. You don't reap much because you don't get to live in community with people. Because I got to tell you right now, when somebody's always right, I don't want to have dinner with them very often, right? I'm not trying to go and hang out with somebody who's a know-it-all. I- I'm going to tell you one more bad story. This is a bad story. I hope I'm okay on time. So there was this guy who used to attend the church, and I'm not going to name any names. And kids, please don't blurt out names. But he was always right. He was always right. And uh, we have a game night that we'll do, and we'll have people come over, we'll play board games. And uh, he had been invited, and then he just didn't show up anymore, and it was so much better, right? I mean, like, my daughter, uh, she's 16 today, but she was like 11 at the time, and she was taking ballet, and he's like in the house telling her how her form is wrong, and how he knows a lot about ballet. And I'm like, what are you doing, right? You know, and then my my son, uh, my youngest at the time, you know, really into Nerf guns, you know, he's like, and they're like, it's like, yeah, you know that you're using that Nerf gun all wrong, right? You're supposed to, there's, there's a form to holding a Nerf gun. And my kid's like, pow, and hits him in the face. And then he starts screaming. And I'm like, ooh, don't yell at my kid. Like, I'm having a hard time. And so then he just disappeared. And I was like, yes. Well, one day we were coming back, Caitlin and I were coming back for game night. We had gone to go get like a bag of ice or something. And no lie, his truck was parked out front. And I pulled in. And I drove away. And Kayla goes, what are you doing? And I was like, I can't go in there. I just can't handle it. (laughs) She was like, you can't handle what? And I was like, when somebody knows everything but clearly knows nothing, right? Like, I mentally am falling apart. But I had to be a good dad. And I drove around and I parked and we went in and we dealt with it, right? Okay? This right here doesn't function around what I would hope that you would agree. You're normal people. If you don't think I'm normal, then that's fine. But on the same hand that we hate obedience, we demand obedience, right? I'll brag about how I stuck it to my boss, but I'll tell you exactly what you need to do with your body and how you need to think about this thing and how you had better be doing this thing, right? And I'll have a TikTok rant that's 30 minutes long, right? Nonstop telling you what to do. Some people call me a control freak, but I like to think of myself as a control enthusiast. I mean, think about the backwards logic of that. Nobody's going to tell me nothing, but I'm going to tell you everything. And what was he obedient to, right? Right? I mean, it was humility that called him to obedience, right? He was obedient to die on a cross. Next week's Easter, okay? We're going to have a good Friday service this week. It's going to be here at 7 o'clock, and it'll be an hour long. It'll be great. I hope you'll make plans to be here. Uh, it, you know, sacrifice a Friday night of your life to come and be in, in a place where we just solemnly take a moment to remember the sacrifice of God in the flesh who came and was beaten. And just a little perspective, when they beat him, they tied him off to this, to this uh, little column, and Experts say that his body would have been draped out like this, and and it's important to understand that he would have been in such a defeated and limp position that even the soles of his feet were exposed. So when they take that cat of nine tails, this whip that has these nine ends on it that have bone shards and glass fragments in it, and they begin to give him the beating that he got, it would have removed almost certainly almost all of the flesh from his shoulders. And only the the reason it didn't go any higher is because it was illegal to hit them on the head because it killed them before they could get to the cross, right? You might have thought, well, this is, you know, it was a humanitarian thing. No, 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 no. They just wanted the enjoyment of getting them to the cross. And so if you robbed the people of the enjoyment, then you were breaking the law and you were subject to punishment. So they would be, and it would have removed the flesh from his shoulders to the soles of his feet. So when they put that heavy cross on him and made him carry it up the hill, right? He would have been doing that most likely with no flesh on the bottom of his feet laid across just bare bloody muscle on his back. Most of us would have just blacked out and given up on life. So that humility to be obedient was to be in a position that he genuinely believed God had called him to, that he was supposed to be in, but that no man would want to be in. Verse 9 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So you're really getting two sermons out of this one today. We're talking about incarnation, but let me tell you, when you are obedient, even in those little micro transactions of life between a boss or a teacher or somebody that's putting authority with you, when you are obedient and you offer a little bit of humility, you position yourself to be exalted. You ex- position yourself to receive the favor of God. And you might feel in the moment like, oh, I don't like being here, but I promise you in five years, 10 years, you'll look at your life and go, man, how in the world did I get to the place where I am at right now? Because God can trust you. Look at this, therefore, right? Because of this, because of his obedience to the cross, because he was able to be exalted, right? Because of, because of the cross, he was able to be exalted, Because of obedience, he could be exalted. And that application is true in your life as well. John chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? This idea of being exalted back into this place, this glory. What is this glory? This is renown. It is a divine quality. So when you hear somebody talk about renown, right, the only person that has renown, It doesn't matter if somebody tries to declare renown on themselves. You'll see uh, uh, like celebrities, they'll be like, you know, my renown, right? You might be reading a column and they'll talk about it. It's a real place of arrogance that they're coming from because renown is a fame that is exclusively to the divine, exclusively. So anyone who calls, anyone who talks about their renown, they're not just talking about fame. They're talking about some type of divinity. It only applies to God. Only God can have that type of of glory. Now watch this. You and I, we have an end, right? In this fleshly sense, we're going to come to an end, right? This is important. This is not removed from the conversation, okay? Jesus' incarnation has an end, right? He comes in the flesh, but that is not His permanent, eternal position, right? Jesus returns to glory. He has a glorified body after the resurrection, He returns to glory. He is no longer at a place where he is depriving himself of that glory, but he is able to operate in that glory. And here's the reality is that we return to the state we were created for. It is a glorified body. It is different than what we have now. We have an end. We step into a different nature. Now, some of us in that nature will spend eternity with access to the Creator, and some of us will spend eternity never to be in His presence again. Never to be in His presence again. So therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is name? A name is fame. It is reputation. What's in a name? I got to tell you something. Like this is a thing that Carmen and I got a hold of very young. When we named our kids, the names of our kids, we labored over naming our kids. And I don't say this today to shame anybody in here. Uh, however you did it in the past, you, you know, you, it's okay, right? Okay. But Carmen and I, we took the Gerber's book of baby names and we threw that away, right? We didn't care what Gerber was saying about these words. We believe in the power of the tongue. We believe in the importance of a name. We see it talked about in scripture. So we started looking at, well, what is the historical definition of some of these names? And you know what's interesting before we threw the Gerber book out? The reason we did is because the Gerber book gives a positive definition to every name that is not the true historical definition to every name. Many names that were given historically were given to shame people, to curse people, right? And we just take those names, and in America, we just go, well, it means that you're a beautiful flower with a, with a sunshine on you, right? And then somebody goes, no, I'm pretty sure that meant that you were like the slayer of all things good and the epitome of dismal abyss, you know? It's like, don't do that, right? So, what is in a name? A name, it, it, it communicates that fame. It communicates who they are. And and believing that, we took it very seriously. We named Isaac Isaac because it meant child of laughter. We wanted him to be a happy guy. Uh, We named Caitlin Caitlin because uh, going back to to the Latin as far back as we could go with what our goal was, it meant pure. So, we wanted her to be a, we wanted her to experience purity in her life. Uh, Zoe meant life as God intended. Ezra meant helper, right? So, these were all things that were really important to us, and and we wanted to be able to communicate that. And here was what our goal was, right? Our goal was that when the people who hate our kids most in this life, right, the people that that want nothing but just the, the worst for them, when they speak their name, they'll be speaking life over them. 
that every time those people speak their name, all they're doing is speaking life over our kids. Why? Because there is something about the power of the name, and that's what's happening here. He gives them the name that is above every name. Why? Because when the name of Jesus is spoken, when the name is spoken, the, the spiritual environment shifts. Demons flee, right? There's a name that is above every name. And it's not something that we should, it's something that should be declared. And it's really interesting to me how we live in a society today that wants to control the story, right? We have people who are just, they're so intent on controlling the story. It's like, you know, oh, you know, and listen again, just hear me out if you have operated this way. I'm not trying to, to call you out or make you feel bad. But there's a, there's a, a common theme running in the world today that, that looks like this. It looks like, yes, we're having a child, but we're not telling anybody the name. We're not telling anybody what we know. We're keeping that private. You can't take pictures of our kids, right? And, and, and listen, if that were from a genuine position of privacy, a genuine position of privacy because you live a private life, that's, that's one thing, right? But what we see is we see this kind of hypocrisy of privacy, but yet nothing else in their lives is private. Like they're, they're running a live stream, driving down the road, eating McDonald's, you know what I'm saying? But they want to be in control of the narrative, in control of the story instead of being submitted to the story, right? And I'm not saying that telling everybody what your baby's name is is some big like, you know, sin or exaltation or something like that. But when we begin to understand some of these things, man, I, we just saw it as we're just going to start declaring right now things over our, over our kids, you know? Uh, the thing that's going to make our kids who we want them to be is not going to be putting them in like some little closet here. You know what I'm saying? You know what's crazy? Think about this, right? You think, think about people who will go like, well, I'm very protective of my child, and so I don't let them do all of these things, right? Like I, I heard one guy say that um, he was babysitting his grandkids, and they had a, um, a, uh, they had a childproof toilet right? And he's sitting here like going crazy because he can't figure out how to get the toilet seat up. And uh, the older you get, the more, the less time you have, right? So you're sitting there and you're like, and he's going crazy. And he's thinking to himself, he's like, listen, if you, I know that people drown in the toilet, but you know, like, like maybe that's like a sign or something, you know? So he's like sitting here struggling with it. Like we can create these like, these like types of protections. And then we can go and ask total strangers to keep our kids and teach them all day long right? Listen, I'm not saying that you're shameful for sending your kids to school. What I'm saying is, is that we have a responsibility to teach them how to engage in life in those scenarios, right? We have a responsibility to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And so it's okay to declare what God is doing in your life and take control of the narrative by giving it to Jesus, not by trying to control it on Facebook, right? Control it through in a kingdom mind, right? So God named him Jesus because it declares the reputation of the one true Savior. Watch here in verse 10. So that at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That at the name of Jesus, something happens in the physical and in the spiritual. At the name of Jesus, people begin to immediately form opinions, ideas, they take positions, they draw lines, and the same thing is happening in the heavens. So there's something powerful about this name. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is the name of the one who spent every moment of his life here on earth dedicated to saving us. He was God in the flesh. And then on Good Friday, he was nailed to a cross, and his final words incarnate, it is finished. Let's stand to our feet. This week, Mini Call Passion Week, it is a week to reflect on the death, burial, sacrifice of our Savior and His resurrection. This is the greatest story ever told. It is the greatest story that will ever be told. When my kids were each born, 
the very first thing I said to all four of them is when I got to hold them, and of course, you know, mom did most of the heavy lifting there, <laughs> all of the heavy lifting. Um, but when I held them, each one I said, welcome to the greatest story ever told. I can't wait to see your part in it. Those were my first words to them, every one of them. It was so important to me to just say that over them because I believe that there are so many stories that are told, right? And we love a good story, but there is no story like the story of a creator who redeemed those that ran from him and he is coming back and he is establishing a new kingdom and a new earth. And man, I don't know what it all means. I say it all the time. Right? There's, a, there's a, the city of Jerusalem, and only those that are children of God are allowed to enter and to leave. Right? Why would you leave? Right? And who's not allowed to enter? Like, what's going on over here? I'm excited for the, for the next part, the next, the next book to be released. It's the greatest story ever told, and the connecting point for it all was that God came in the flesh. And so, if God was willing to do that, and He was willing to go to this cross then I'm going to trust that he knows more than I do. And sometimes I think to myself, like, man, I, 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 I don't think I would do it that way. And I remind myself, I'm not God. I don't see all things the way that he sees them. And so I'm going to trust him. And I'm not going to hate the people around me. I'm going to love the people around me. Secondarily to that, I love God. He's number one. He's number one. I want to pray with you right now. Lord, we love you, and we just take time walking into this week to reflect on those, those final moments that Jesus in the flesh walked among us. He shared meals with those that were close to him. He was praised, he was adored by the people of Jerusalem, but just at the drop of a hat, they would all turn on him. And we reflect on that today. We reflect on that an emotional whirlwind, that torture that he had to be feeling inside to move from praise to rejection, from adoration to a group of people wanting him to die. And we are thankful that you came in the flesh for us as a, as a way to connect, that we could relate and understand just a glimpse, just to get a, a little bit of who you are. And so as we, as we prepare this week to take time to, to remember the death, burial, and the resurrection, I pray that you would be at work in our lives doing what only you can do. Give us boldness, Lord, to be obedient in moments where it creates an uncomfortable situation. Help us to be obedient unto you even when maybe some of our friends, our coworkers, family members would look at us and go, that's crazy. I would never do that. Help us to be able to press through that, that, that type of pressure and be confident that you are the one true king. And therefore, we trust that you know best. Lord, we love you. I thank you for what you're doing in this church and in this city. Lord, we pray against the lies of the enemy, the false teaching that's even infiltrated our pulpits. Lord, we just, we just pray that truth and light would just infiltrate back into those places, Lord, that we would be a city that is declaring your goodness and your mercy built right on top of the foundation of your word. Be with us in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Just a couple of things. Listen, if you need prayer, if you're in a place where you don't know what's going on, you're hurting, uh, you're sick in body, you just need to hear from God. Listen, I want to encourage you. We have prayer ministry teams in the back. They want to pray with you, okay? If you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life or you don't really know what that means, we would love to talk with you about that. You can grab the prayer team. You can grab myself, uh, uh, Michael, who was leading worship earlier, uh, 
we would love to be able to share the gospel with you in a way, maybe answer some questions. This Friday, we are doing a special service right here at 7 o'clock. Uh, should be right at an hour long. We want to respect your time secondarily, but primarily we are coming together to take a moment and reflect on the death of Jesus. And then we're going to gather together for celebration next Sunday. We're going to be wrapping up doctrine. It's going to be a really great time. It's Easter Sunday. It's also the time of the year that is the easiest to invite somebody. So if you have a, a colleague, a neighbor, somebody that you've kind of gotten to know, invite them to church. There's so many people, right? I was in uh, Publix last weekend, and this guy said, hey, you're the pastor of our city church. And I said, yeah. And he was like, um, uh, we visited right before the pandemic, and we've been talking about coming back, but we just didn't know if the church was open, right? I was like, yes, absolutely, the church is open. We would love for you to come and be here, right? So many people just living with, in, in misinformation, not knowing what's going on, just an invite may, may even help them know, oh, okay, so it's okay to go back to church. We'd love to have them here with us next Easter. Hey, guys, we love you. Uh, we'll see you Friday and then Sunday. As always, go change your world.